representing John Gabriel, the undisputed king of stuff. How the hell are you? This is John Gabriel, host of the King of Stuff podcast. And for the past couple of weeks, we've seen, well, past month, really, we've seen uh, cities in disarray, uh, riots breaking out, of course, peaceful protests, too. But uh, mobs are tearing down statues. There's all sorts of uh, dissent and problems and troubles and all this negative stuff. And most people are sitting around complaining about it on social media. And I thought, why don't we talk actual solutions to this? It's about two weeks ago on the podcast, we talked police reform with uh, J.D. Tuchile. And now I have Greg Brooks on, an old friend of mine. He is the president of the Better Cities Project. And the Better Cities Project, it's a new organization that helps people in America's largest cities live free, happy lives. They uncover what works, promote solutions, and forge partnerships that turn ideas into results. It's nonpartisan. It's a lot of it is kind of common sense, but a lot of it also is things conservatives, libertarian-minded people, limited government people in general have been promoting for the cities, but it hasn't been cataloged in one place. So, Greg, thank you very much for being on. Appreciate it. I'm, I'm glad to be here. It's always nice to talk to a friend. Yes, yes. We work together. Uh, full disclosure, I'm affiliated with the Better Cities Project as well. Uh, my title, I tried to get Dread Sovereign uh, for my help, and that was summarily rejected. Um, they they uh, warned of an FEC investigation. So I, I uh, backed off from that. But Greg and I worked together. He was a wonderful boss of mine at the Goldwater Institute, state-based think tank here in Arizona that I've mentioned before. And uh, that was kind of like my policy boot camp, learning about all these various issues here. Now, the Better Cities Project, you're not just focused on policing. You're not just focused on green eye shade, dollars and cents. What the heck are you doing with us? Well, you really summed it up well. You know, we we want everyone in America's largest cities to live freer, happier lives. Uh, in in a sense, it's the absolute best policy environment for that, because when you're in a city, it doesn't matter whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. You want the you want the potholes fixed. It doesn't matter whether you're a conservative or a wild eyed progressive. Chances are you want a functioning downtown and a tax burden that doesn't drive you out of, of out of town. So although certainly there are partisan politics going on uh, in cities, there's also a lot of uh, a, a lot of areas for agreement. And, I, you know, we looked at the opportunity and and frankly sort of saw it as as you mentioned, some other think tanks have touched upon city issues. We didn't see anybody really rolling in and saying, okay, this is a greenfield opportunity for those of us who care about small, efficient, and frankly, rights-protecting government. And so that's what we're trying to focus on. And one thing, too, is we see, um, well, first, let's just talk about cops. Um, you have some police officers, which have done very bad things, you have what I believe is the vast majority who are working their butts off, totally thankless kind of a gig that they have. And cities are looking at various measures. How do we deal with qualified immunity? How do we deal with the police unions? How do we deal with training? Um, what is Better Cities Project's thoughts about just some basic 
uh, structural ways, instead of uh, throwing red paint on a statue of a of an abolitionist, we could actually help improve policing in our communities. You know, uh, the worst and most common think tank answer is, well, you know, we're thinking about that. <laughs> and uh, we hope to be a bit more action oriented at that. However, having said that, we, we are starting to explore it. Our focus for the last uh, couple of months has, has everybody's focus been on COVID and how cities are going to come back from the economic impact of that. But when it comes to policing, I think that we've got exactly the wrong incentives aligned on several fronts. Politicians have an existential incentive to do something, even when doing something means doing something wrong or badly, or uh, the, the absolute worst combination is something that sounds good, but is actually destructive and corrosive over the long term. And I think some of some of the moves to defund the police uh, fall into that. Uh, if you if you'd like a, a less controversial version of that, the embrace of community policing, which means a hundred different things to a hundred different police chiefs, uh, is is another questionable idea. On the other hand, officers have uh, even though the. the the overwhelming majority of officers may be absolutely uh, doing their best job every day. The incentives for them to perform at their peak ethical and operational best are not there. Uh, there's very there's very little that goes wrong with an officer when he steps over the line a little bit. It's only we only see the cases that blow up in the national media. Uh, my colleague Patrick Tui was having a conversation with a, a chief of police the other day uh, who said, well, we've only had two complaints about uh, from within the department over the last X months about officer behavior. And uh, he was asked quite pointedly, OK, well, two complaints that you know of, how do you know that your culture is not hiding another 50 complaints because because the incentives aren't there to do it right. Uh, another thing is the just the plain old fiscal cost of it. If an officer is not acting ethically, short of these large visible cases that result in a mur in a, you know a manslaughter or murder uh, accusation, uh, you know officers are not leaving money on the table. Uh, when they behave badly, generally speaking. And that's, that's one of the areas we want to explore is how to change that dynamic. One thing that we've noticed, too, is there is a significant uh, one thing. This fantastic BC Free report has been released about getting cities back to work after this bizarre shutdown that no one expected, you know, four months ago, let alone a few years back when you were kind of envisioning this Better Cities project in conservatism writ large is, Yep, those cities stink. Look at all the chaos going on. I'm moving out to the country and the country mouse versus the city mouse. Is that the term? Something like that. Maybe it's city rat in conservative minds. But this kind of dumping on large cities. Um, I happen to, um, I, I'm a, a more of a moderate, I guess, because I live in the burbs. So it's not really country, not really city. But we have a lot of this dichotomy. Cities are just, in their essence, bad places. You can't protect yourself. 
uh, when there's too much violence, the police can't protect you, and all these complaints. Why do you think that's wrong? Because I've never been anti-city. I can't imagine living in a place like New York City, but a lot of that is a climate. You know, I think what's happened is we've sort of abandoned the field as conservatives and libertarians uh, and and embraced that more Jeffersonian ideal of, you know, uh, I've got my agrarian utopia out here or my shack in the woods, if you will, <laughs> and uh, and sort of left the cities on their own. And, and the uh, the problem with that is that cities are such a, an enormous part of our our uh, they're the of our, our lives, whether we live in them or not. They're the engines of our uh, economy. They have an overwhelming impact on our culture. Uh, you know, whether you're a, a free market libertarian or a social conservative, uh, there's, there's no island in the middle of the Atlantic, no shack in the woods far enough away to avoid the impacts of bad ideas coming out of the cities. So it's up to us, I think, if we're if we're serious about uh, either preserving the things that we think are valuable or advancing the ideas that we would like to see more widely adopted to actively engage with the city. You know, they they do use different language and have a different set of priorities uh, for the most part. But that doesn't mean they're not worthy of our attention. on the Right. Yeah. And I, I think something too, um, a term I picked up, we think of cities are a great place for people to get together. Think Silicon Valley, all these brilliant people in tech get together. They start bouncing ideas off each other and create new things. Uh, but I think of it also culturally, there is a, a favorite musician slash philosopher named Brian Eno, who uh, talks about seniors. And he says, it's like a collective version of genius is you get a certain group of people together in London in 1966 or in, you know, L.A., pick your time period, who are all working together, a lot of times competing against each other and hating each other and trying to destroy each other. But by being in the same scene, they end up creating incredible art. And you get that in culture, you get that in business, you get in all kinds of things. And cities are a great place to foment these revolutionary ideas that are positive. It's not toppling statues. It's creating monuments. That's right. And uh, Ed, Ed uh, Glasher, I believe uh, I'm pronouncing that correctly, a uh, Harvard economist, uh, has referred to cities as mankind's greatest invention. Now, I've, you know, I, I mentioned that to my wife and I got a very hard eye roll. But uh, <laughs> I, I think, think the Chemex coffee maker is the greatest <laughs> invention, but... <laughs> And but I, I think there's a nugget of truth there. Right. We, we've uh, the sto even the story, uh, the story of our uh, tremendous and historically utterly unprecedented uh, abolition of the worst poverty in the world over the last 50 or so years comes out of our commerce and our innovation that is. Is not exclusively born in cities, but is overwhelmingly born in cities. And so that starts to uh, it starts to reinforce this case that, OK, cities organically left to themselves will create new opportunities and new innovations because people are 
densely packed together pursuing their own self-interest, right? The oldest, best story. Uh, but too often, the people who run the cities are getting in the way or adding viscosity to that to slow it down. And so that, that's really at a top level what we want to address is how do we, how do we help people in cities who are not political insiders who can't just walk into City Hall and cut a deal – how do we help them understand the dynamic better so that they can, on their own, locally work to change that dynamic? And to the city leaders who are listening, we, we want to help them realize that perhaps they don't need such a tight grip on everything and that good outcomes for everybody very often come from loosening that grip. The first major release of the Better Cities Project is getting back to work jump-starting your city's economy, basically, after this weird, I, I view it, the lockdowns and shutdowns were almost like a medically induced coma where everybody was like, okay, everybody freeze for a month, then let's get back to it. Of course, many businesses didn't survive, and many cities are saying, boy, we got to make up a lot of revenue if they're you know short-sighted. Other cities are saying, wow, why don't we use this uh, situation to kind of leapfrog over competition, uh, especially, you know, here, uh, I live in the Phoenix area, and we're always looking at, huh, how do we get more of these great California companies to move here? So a lot of people are saying, okay, let's use this as an opportunity. What are some ways that cities uh, should be looking at this in getting back to work, in uh, getting their people, you know, uh, creating revenue, but also moving units as well? Well, let's let's start with the the easiest list, which is the things you don't what <laughs> you don't want to do is you don't want to embrace this locust like her uh, swarm of development attorneys and uh, developers who wander from town to town cutting big, shiny economic development deals for subsidized uh, projects. No, you're so I shouldn't build a monorail. Is that what you're saying? Well, sir, there's nothing on earth like a genuine bona fide electrified six car monorail. What I say? Monorail. What's it called? Monorail. That's right. Monorail. Monorail. Should build a monorail. <laughs> you don't want to build a logistics hub. You don't want uh, to uh, build a sports stadium. None of those things are bad in and of themselves. They are a poor investment of taxpayer dollars if you're going to subsidize those developers. If it's such a great freaking idea, let the developers and the capital markets take the risk. So that that's the, what you don't want to do. And that's very scary to a lot of city officials because, A, it flies against the we should be doing something. B, it flies against the political urge to build big, shiny objects. And uh, C, they look around and they will see other cities doing exactly what I'm saying not to do. But the research has been very clear in surveys of CEOs who have relocated their businesses. 80% of them, I believe the number is, said that they would have made the relocation decision they made regardless of incentives. And so that cumulatively across the country is just billions of dollars of taxpayer money down a rat hole. And, you know, I, I think cities are, cities are also fantastic because they're, they're a gran, very granular political unit. If you want to build some sort of quasi-collective utopia in your city, 
okay, get the votes together, vote the council in, go do that thing. It's a local democratic action. And so when I talk about wasting taxpayer money, I'm not automatically thinking some some traditional conservative version because we should be driving taxes down to zero necessarily. If your local priorities are uh, are such that uh, you know you you need a healthy a healthy tax to, to do them, go do that thing. But you know, spend according to your priorities. Building shiny skyscrapers uh, by taking money out of the schools and out of the uh, tax base is no voter's priority. It's the chamber's priority because they like a deal as much as anybody. It's city hall's priority. And it's the, the sooner people realize that those are not necessarily the priorities of average citizens, the better. And that's the thing, too. We will see people of all parties, governors, mayors, whatever, tout, oh, this ginormous company is moving here and we're going to get 25,000 jobs, whatever it might be. What about the rest of us? Um, you know, you have ride-sharing businesses, you have home-based businesses, especially during this pandemic, um, you know, go to Etsy. People are, <laughs> people are making a fortune there, whether it's, you know, creating their own things, uh, working as a middle person between antique stores and whatever it might be. Um, how can government encourage people, you know, they don't need to commute when you can do a lot of this work at home. That's right. And this is where getting out of the way, really, the, the rubber meets the road. Uh, you mentioned Etsy. Actually, Etsy is a great example because in some communities, there are still laws on the books that say you can't have a home-based business unless you're a hat maker, which is about as close to an Etsy business <laughs> as you get, right? So, um, you know... Uh, Across ride sharing, across uh, sh uh, short term rentals, uh, across uh, craft businesses, the gig economy of white collar professionals who have been laid off from their jobs and are now freelancing at home. Uh, at the low end of the scale, there's just licensure requirements and permitting processes. If you're running, it, you know, it, it shouldn't cost you an arm and a leg and take three weeks to become an Uber driver. You know, if that's something you want, uh, if at, at the higher end of the scale, there are just restrictions in place that are strictly there to appease political constituencies uh, where I, I live in Las Vegas, uh, Clark County, Nevada, unsurprisingly, has not allowed short term rentals for 30 years. Uh, I'm <laughs> for sure some the, reason <laughs> I'm sure the hotel lobby had nothing to do with that, right. <laughs> um, you know, and. And the reason this is so important, because there, there is this risk that we all just sound like uh, anti-regulatory wonks when we talk about this stuff. And that, that's OK. I embrace my anti-regulatory wonk. But at a time when so many people are in the street angry about what they feel is a broken social contract, whether it be policing, which I think policing is what triggered these protests. It is not the breadth of these protests. There's a lot more behind it than that. Uh, there are people, millions of people are just un, unhappy with uh, the social contract they have with uh, their their governments. And it's at that time that I think it's really important for those of us uh, on the right to realize that economic liberty is has been and shall be part of civil rights. 
And the sooner we talk about it in those terms and the sooner we engage people on those terms and not just in this uh, in this talk of uh, defeating the regulatory beast like St. George Dragon. Uh, I think uh, I think we'll get a little more traction. You know, all of the people who are unhappy about uh, about racism uh, and are uh, and, and I'm not speaking here of uh, sort of the woke component. I'm talking about people who experience racism day to day. And it's so much a part of their lives that they're now out in the streets protesting. I, I don't know what their lives are like, okay? I don't I don't claim to have that life experience, but I know this much. I know that if it were easier for them to better their lives by making it easier to start a business, to go into a different line of work, to to uh, maybe uh, set up a little rental in their backyard and, and make some money on the side, all of that uh, turns into political power. Because if you are uh, if you're doing OK, if you're if your economic arc is on an upswing, then your your vote is, uh, frankly, paid attention to a bit more by the political class. And so uh, a lot of the recommendations we make at BCP have to do with economic and policy issues. But there's a path that will lead people to political power and. Uh, ultimately to greater civil rights by unleashing their economic liberty. Right, right. And in America, traditionally, especially the past 50 years, the most important color is in black or white. It's green. And if if you want a right. politician to listen to you, um, that just, and also too, it's you don't need to be filthy rich. You can just be in a group like, say, Lyft drivers, where you all say, hey, I'm making some extra money over the weekends, really helps out my family, helps maintain my style of life. We can all unite and press for them not to shut down our various uh, side gigs. You know, one of the things we said when we started BCP is is sort of our uh, what answering the question, what does success look like? Success looks like us talking to people in the basement of a church on uh, perhaps not the rich side of town and not talking about Republican versus Democrat policies or conservative versus uh, liberal policies, but talking about outsiders and insiders. And if you're in the basement in that church having that conversation, guess what? You're not an insider at City Hall. And maybe working together we can offset some of that insider dynamic. Yeah, yeah, that's good. One problem we're seeing in a lot of cities and, uh, you know, one of the first uh, victims of damage in Minneapolis was burning down some low-income housing, a new development. I think that happened maybe the second night of, quote-unquote, protests um, was low-income housing. What can cities do to help out with housing? Because, you know, we we both live in the great American Southwest. And every time you hear something out of California is we have a housing shortage. This is a crisis. Here's a new government program. And I've been seeing that for the past 20 years. And guess what? Next year, housing crisis is worth is worse. What can cities do to assist in that? You know, it, the. This really may be, after a lot of false starts, as you've indicated, this may be 
housing's moment, because housing is not just an economic resiliency issue, as we've talked about forever. Uh, it's a public health issue in the age of uh, a pandemic. And so uh, the answer is going to vary by cities. You know, in the city of Chicago, your housing problem is tied directly to the baronial powers that aldermen have. You don't get to do a project in a district unless the alderman specifically signs off on it. No surprise, the people who get their projects signed off on are political donors, and that artificially restricts the supply. At the other end of things, in a in a uh, a more common scenario, uh, you know, the, the the trite answer is within the city limits, you need to get pe- uh, get the government out of the business of trying to regulate every little thing. You know, there uh, the one of the easiest low cost housing fixes out there is to allow accessory dwelling units, the proverbial granny apartment or granny flat. And not just allow them, but allow them with a streamlined permitting process. You know, there are some cities that have approved uh, a book of plans for these things. And if you want to build one that's based on those plans, your permit process is trivial and fast, right? Because you're just plowing right into it. Uh, However, because a lot of cities, actually the Phoenix metro area is a great example of this, right? You have the city of Phoenix which is wide, not tall. You know, it's a, it's a very Los Angeles-like development model. Uh, no offense. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> Without the beach, sadly. But, but you, also, you also have all these suburbs that basically you know, almost have a feathered edge with the city. They're distinct political boundaries, but there's not a lot of clarity when you're driving around. Right. And in the suburbs... One of the dynamics that impacts housing prices in the cities is in the suburbs, it's the uh, the suburban homeowner class that does not want to allow easier development of multi-unit housing. They don't want to allow ADUs uh, in a lot of communities. They don't they don't want any new development that doesn't mean meet a strict set of aesthetic standards and all of that. Uh, a smart developer can get around all of that. A smart developer knows that getting around all of that costs a lot of money and a lot of lawyer and consultant time. And it ends up creating this artificial uh, overhead on the cost of housing. I, I believe the number is something like in, in, in dense, highly regulated markets, you may be looking at 30, 35 percent of the cost of a new development going into just dealing with that regulatory burden. Uh, you know, I, I, I know that all of the all of the planners in your audience will recoil when I say this, but <laughs> Houston seems to be doing just fine without that level of burden. I know when I was a college student, I'd always cared about politics and policy. I said, maybe someday I'll run for, you know, I don't need to be president. I know America wants me to be president, but I never had that ambition. But maybe I should be on a city council, something like that. And then one of my assignments was. You're, you're the president America deserves, but not the one it needs. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and but I was like, oh, maybe I'll be on a city council. That's a way to be civically minded, but, you know, won't take up all my time. And in college, I had a class assignment sit through a city council meeting 
And that's what it was. It was four and a half hours of, well, before you build the 7-Eleven, um, you're supposed to have 75% ground cover on this little parking island, but you're using these three bushes. We would prefer two palm trees. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to die if I have to listen to this anymore. Uh, I'm not fit for any level of government because I just go crazy. But that's what it is, a new housing development. It's meeting after meeting after meeting of the city council people. One, say, is a retired fire chief. Another one is a restaurateur. One is a car dealership owner. And they're going through and picking. I don't like that beige paint color that you've approved for your right. community. And it's uh, mind numbing, to say the least. Well, and. Yes, there's a lot of that, but th we, what we've also found is there are a lot of city council members and mayors who want to do the right thing, but they have been captured by the existing bureaucracy and pedantic stances of the staff because they they come into the office because they're engaged with their community and they want the best for their community, but they don't typically have a policy background, and that's you know, I know it's sort of a 30,000 foot level, but one of the things that we want to do is create and sustain a better class of municipal politician. Uh, you know, I, I'd be the happiest guy in the world if BCP was essentially training up city, uh, future city council members and future mayors on what municipal issues look like and what the trade offs are so that when they got into office, Instead of sit, having a four hour council meeting about whether it was a shrub or a palm tree, you know, they could say, huh, that's funny. You know, over in these other communities, they've found that if they just do this and this, it eliminates all of that and they've had better results uh, there. It's it's an information starved audience. You know, uh, I'm a former journalist, and so I tend to pay a little too much attention to the, the world of dying publications. But. A lot of the trade publications for local governments, city and state magazine, governing magazine, uh, City Lab, which was recently bought by Bloomberg, they're, they've all either gone out of business or withered on the vine. So it, there's, there's a role for some organization or business to step in and provide these people with information that helps them do their jobs. Just like, you know, uh, welders have their magazine. You know, uh, uh, bakers, I'm sure, have their own their own magazine and information sources. Local government needs that. And that's one of the areas we hope to sort of expand into. Well, fantastic. And uh, the most important question of every week, what music have you been listening to lately? Oh, you know, the, <laughs> that's a great question. Uh I am a guy who grew up with what is now sort of classic country, the Willie's Roadhouse uh, version of country. Music. Real country, baby. That's right. And I, I don't appreciate what country's turned into the last few years. Uh, the first time I heard rap on a country station, I, <laughs> I've got nothing against rap. You know, I, I was I was a young man when rap sort of came onto the scene, but I don't want it in my country music. So I find myself listening to uh, bands like the Rhyolite Sound, which is a, a Vegas based uh, band that's had a couple of great albums. They've uh, they've got uh, a particular single called On Stolen Time.
I defy anybody to listen to it without imagining the bar, the beer, the chicken wire between the band and everybody else. Just fantastic. And, uh, and because, uh, because it seems apt for the current cultural moment, I've got Oingo Boingo's Dead Man's Party uh, in the car and probably listen to No One Lives Forever uh, on repeat way too much. <laughs> That's perfect. We will add those, by the way. We have a Spotify playlist, so everybody subscribe. We will do that. Now, where can everybody find out more about the Better Cities Project? We'll have the main website in our show notes, but uh, where can they find your work in, in the future? You know, we're at, uh, we're at better-cities.org. I really encourage everybody to uh, go either read or listen to. We've got audio as well as uh, written narrative. The Getting Back to Work report, which is at gettingbacktowork, all one word, dot O-R-G. Greg Brooks, uh, president of Better Cities Project, thanks so much for spending time with me and our lovely slash handsome listeners. It's great to be with the king of stuff. <laughs> great to hear from Greg Brooks. Learn some actual solutions to what's going on in our cities right now. Sort of just uh, belly aching about them, which I admit I do too much of um, on the Twitters. Where have I been this past week? Well, I launched a new series. Um, I, if you follow me on Twitter or on Ricochet, I've mentioned that I've officially uh, joined the Orthodox Church. So I'm going to be doing a Sunday series on those every week for who knows how many. I figure if I uh, do about a thousand words a, a whack and go for 50 weeks, there's a book right there. So maybe I'll do that. But a lot of people are like, what's the deal with that? Why are you such a weirdo? So I was like, oh, might as well flesh it out in my own brain, if nothing else. And uh, recently released an article in the local paper, the Arizona Republic, about the silliness of, speaking of orthodoxy, iconoclasm, tearing down the statues and how it's a lot easier to tear stuff down than to build stuff. And that's why people are focused on tearing stuff down. It's not going to solve racism, of course, but it just makes them feel like they're doing something, even if the something is idiocy. And I noted, you know, it started with Confederate monuments, but it very quickly devolved into tearing down General Ulysses S. Grant, Abraham Lincoln. Uh, now they're talking about Mount Rushmore. The Democrats did a tweet um, equating Mount Rushmore and the 4th of July with white supremacy, which they deleted an hour later. Mercifully, I saved. I uh, got a uh, screen grab of that, so they could not get away with that, of course. But uh, we're going through a pretty uh, mad moment right now, and uh, I wish I could say it was about to end. But I'm thinking it'll just intensify through November, and if there's a close election, it'll just keep on rolling after that. So keep your head down. Um, Get out there and vote, of course, but uh, don't let the craziness uh, get you down, basically. So thanks very much for listening to the King of Stuff podcast. Please subscribe. Please also, uh, if you could leave a review or just give us five stars, just a click or two on your iPhone or Android, it'd be greatly appreciated. That helps spread the word. And thanks also for all the positive feedback. I was wondering about uh, kind of the rebranding of the show changing up the format a little bit. Uh, people seem very positive about it. I did not hear complaints. I didn't even hear complaints about my goofy uh, logo, which is my head floating disembodied 
um, over a starburst. So uh, thanks for your mercy to me in that. And we'll be talking to you next week. Thanks again to Greg. And thanks to all of you for listening. Have a great July 4th. Ricochet. Join the conversation.